Chapter 9 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 9 The next thing that London heard about Oscar Wilde was that on arriving in New York he had declared himself disappointed with the Atlantic. This remark of his was seized upon by his critics as a further proof of the man's intolerable conceit and arrogance. As a matter of fact, it was the very simple expression of the feeling with which most people who cross the Atlantic for the first time look back on the passage when that voyage has been performed during fine weather. One expects a tumultuous sea, a succession of awe-inspiring spectacles, great heights and abysmal depths of surging waters. And when the sea is calm, well, it's calm. The man could not say the simplest thing without exciting malevolent criticism. Before he landed, Oscar Wilde was, as is usual in America with visitors of distinction, quote, interviewed by various reporters who had come out to meet the Arizona. The report which appeared in the New York Herald gives, as he himself declared, the best account of what he said, and may therefore be reproduced here. Quote, men may come and men may go, but it is not every day that an apostle, Thwaite, of aestheticism comes to the shore of America. It was for this reason that the Herald reporter met Mr. Oscar Wilde at the first available place, namely, quarantine. Mr. Wilde was not at all adverse to the American process of interviewing, and began by informing the reporter that he had come to the United States to lecture on the Renaissance, which he defined as the revival of the intimate study of the correlation of all the arts. I shall lecture said Mr. Wilde, a little reservedly, in Chickering Hall on the Renaissance. My future movements will depend entirely upon the results of my lecture in a business sense. I have come here with the intention of producing upon the American stage a play which I have written, and which I have not, for reasons, been able to produce in London. It is exceedingly desirable that it should be produced with a cast of actors who shall be thoroughly able to represent the piece with all the force of its original conception. But, said the reporter, do you not intend to produce a volume of poems while you're in America? No, I shall not, certainly for some time to come, publish another volume, but I hardly care to say what the future may develop. You will certainly lecture, however said the reporter. I certainly shall, but I do not know if I shall lecture in other cities besides New York. It will depend entirely upon what encouragement I find in the acceptance of my school of philosophy. Do you then call aestheticism a philosophy? asked the reporter. Most certainly it's a philosophy. It is the study of what may be found in art. It is the pursuit of the secret of life. Whatever there is in all art that represents the eternal truth is an expression of the great underlying truth. So far, aestheticism may be held to be the study of truth in art. Aestheticism, said the reporter, 
has been understood in America to be a blind groping after something which is entirely intangible. Can you, the exponent of aestheticism, give an interpretation which shall serve to give a more respectable standing to the word? I do not know, said Mr. Wilde, that I can give a much better definition than I have already given. But whatever there has been in poetry since the time of Keats, whatever there has been in art that has served to devolve the underlying principles of truth, whatever there has been in science that has served to show to the individual the meaning of truth as expressed to humanity, that has been an exponent of aestheticism. Unquote. And so the two augurs parted and without a smile. Of Oscar Wilde's personal appearance at the time of his landing in New York, it may be recorded that when the late Sir Henry Irving arrived in America on his first visit to the States, it was generally said that he much reminded people of Wilde. In Frederick Daly's monograph, Henry Irving, we find the following passage in the chapter describing the reception given to the great actor on his landing in New York. Quote, but the only unkind thing said of Mr. Irving on his arrival was that he resembled Mr. Oscar Wilde. The figure was muscular, as the aesthetes was, and the face was long and a trifle like his, but there was far more strength in it, and it was more refined and manly. Thus there was a dash of bitterness in Mr. Irving's first American cup, though the writer who commended the chalice to his lips was not without a desire to sweeten the draught. Unquote. At the time of Sir Henry's first visit to America, Oscar Wilde had not yet shown himself. He was still masquerading and mumming, and if there is one person in the world for whom the hard-working and conscientious actor, the sincere artist, has a dislike, it is the man who acts as an amateur by grimace and posture on the stage of life. Oscar Wilde's worst enemies were amongst the actors, and the spirit that prompted this resentment was not always the natural and excusable feeling that vexed Henry Irving when he, the conscientious artist, found himself compared to a man as to whom he did not then understand on what he based his claims to rank as an artist. The same feeling was shown by Cocaine the Younger, who is of modern actors one of the most hard-working, and in The Story of an Unhappy Friendship, we find in this connection the following reference. Quote, I had invited him to lunch with me at Payard's to meet Cocaine Cadet. Cocaine Cadet was not greatly impressed by my friend, and I imagine that, as a general rule, Oscar Wilde did not have much success with actors. These may have thought his affectation, harmless as it was, an infringement on their own rights, a trespass on their domain. Unquote. When catastrophe came upon him, there were two actors who most zealously worked to complete his downfall, but in both cases there was personal animosity. It is difficult to trace any resemblance between Oscar Wilde in 1881 and Henry Irving some years later. Yet, on one occasion, one who knew both men did notice the most striking and extraordinary likeness. This man was attending one night the performance of the Lion's Mail in the beautiful Prince of Wales Theatre in Birmingham. In the scene where Les Cirque, 
having been denounced by the witnesses from the inn, makes his pathetic appeal to one of the women to speak the word which, admitting her mistake, shall absolve him from the horrible charge which has been brought against him, and the witness turns mournfully but resolutely away, Le Cirque's face assumed a look of agony and horror as the vista of what lay before him opened out, a look in which the blood rushed to the face and made it turgid and vultuous. There was at the same time a distending of the eyeballs which seemed about to leap from their sockets, a twisting and contortion of the mouth roughly kneaded into a mass of agony by torturing hands, while the face lengthened as though by two crushing and simultaneous blows on each cheek it had been flattened downwards. The look of unspeakable anguish and dismay was cast sideways at the woman in whose silence Le Cirque read his ruin, shame and death. The spectator to whom reference has been made fell back in his chair from excessive emotion at the sight of a piece of acting so consummate. At that moment Irving presented the exact facial picture of Oscar Wilde, as looking sideways at the foreman of the jury from his place in the dock in the Old Bailey, he listened to the verdict that meant to him ruin, shame and death. The lecture at Chickering Hall was a great success. We read in the New York World the following account of Oscar Wilde's debut before the American public. Quote, it is seldom that Chickering Hall has contained so fine an audience as that which gathered there last evening, Monday, 9th of January, 1882, to see Mr. Oscar Wilde, and to listen to his exposition of those peculiar views which have distinguished him from everyday folk in England. And Mr. Wilde was well worth seeing, his short breeches and silk stockings showing to even better advantage upon the stage than in the gilded drawing-rooms where the young apostle has hitherto been seen in New York. No sunflower, nor yet a lily, dangled from the buttonhole of his coat. Indeed, there is room for reasonable doubt as to whether his coat had even one buttonhole to be put to such artistic use. But, judging his coat by the laws of the Philistines, it was a well-fitting coat, and looked as though it had been made for the wearer as a real coat, and not as a mere piece of decorative drapery. Promptly at eight o'clock, the young lecturer came upon the stage, and with the briefest possible introduction from Colonel Morse, Mr. Wilde began his lecture. Unquote. In the New York Review, The Nation, appeared at the end of that week a long article analysing the lecture and giving the impressions of the audience. It was written by a representative man who admits at the very outset of his remarks that Oscar Wilde's lecture was a success. Yet his conclusion was that, quote, Mr Wilde was essentially a foreign product and can hardly succeed in this country. What he has to say is not new, and his extravagance is not extravagant enough to amuse the average American audience. His knee-breeches and long hair are good as far as they go, but Bunthorne has really spoiled the public for Wilde. Unquote. He was not taken seriously by many. An intimate friend of his relates that the only reference which he ever heard Oscar Wilde make to the coarse things of life was in connection with this lecture. As soon as it was over, he said, a number of fashionable young men who had been present, and who met me at the club to which I went that night, 
wished to take me out to the night houses of new york of course they said after lecturing on art and culture you'll want to go and see the girls Unquote. from a commercial point of view the lecture was a decided success and at once a proposal was made to oscar wilde by that enterprising lecture agent the late major pond who offered to run him for a series of lectures through the states it has been generally understood that this series of lectures was very successful that oscar wilde's progress through the states was a triumphant one and that the venture resulted in great financial benefit to himself and his impresario major pond however himself stated during his last visit to england and at a time when he had visited hall Kane at greba castle to endeavour to persuade the novelist to undertake a lecture tour under his management that oscar wilde's lectures had not been successful and that he had abandoned the tour before the entire list of towns arranged for had been visited this statement was made however at a time when everybody who had anything to say in detriment to oscar wilde was only too ready to give utterance to it at the same time the major was speaking to two men whom he knew to be friends of wilde which allows it to be supposed that he was speaking the truth and another thing is that major pond had been speaking very freely about the different men whom he had run and the financial results which had been obtained the first town that oscar wilde visited after leaving new york was boston where from the very nature of the place and the bent of its inhabitants he might have been assured of a large and attentive audience the audience was indeed large but it was not a representative one it was mainly composed of the curious who had been attracted by the announcement that a number of harvard students dressed up in a burlesque of the aesthetic costume intended to be present and most probably would guy the lecturer a large audience congregated to see the fun but the prominent bostonians stayed away the masqueraders waited until oscar wilde had stepped upon the platform and then trooped in in single file each assuming a demeanour more absurd than that of the man who followed him there were sixty youths in the procession and all were dressed in swallow-tail coats knee-breeches flowing wigs and green ties they all wore large lilies in their buttonholes and each man carried a huge sunflower as he limped along sixty front seats had been reserved for the harvard contingent and it was amidst shouts of laughter that they filed into their places the effect that they had wished to produce was however spoiled to some extent by the fact that oscar wilde had for that occasion discarded his peculiar costume and appeared in ordinary evening dress so that those of the audience to whom his usual appearance was not familiar entirely missed the point that the harvard students wished to make the young men behaved with little decorum though they did not guy the lecturer whose counter-manoeuvre had somewhat abashed them they took the opportunity of such pauses as occurred during the lecture when oscar wilde paused to drink water to applaud in a most vigorous and derisive manner oscar wilde however triumphed in the end as an english gentleman always will triumph in a contest with bores 
on the following day there appeared in that excellent paper the boston evening transcript second of february eighteen eighty one the following account of the lecture which shows with what tact and success the young foreigner turned the tables on the men who had tried to discomfort him Quote, boston is certainly indebted to oscar wilde for one thing the thoroughgoing chastening of the superabounding spirits of the harvard freshman it will be some time we think before a boston assemblage is again invaded by a body of college youths masters such to take possession of the meeting this is not unimportant for if the thing should grow into a practice and succeed anything in the way of public entertainments here must finally be done with the leave only of the youngest and most ill-bred class of harvard students whether in his first off-hand observation or in the pointed remarks scattered through his address or in the story he told of the oxford boys and mr ruskin nothing could have been more gracious more dignified more gentle and sweet and yet more crushing than the lecturer's whole demeanour to them and its influence upon the great audience was very striking a goodly number of the latter it seemed to us had gone there to see the fun in hopes of a jolly row but the tide of feeling was so completely turned by mr wilde's courteous and kindly dignity that even this portion of the audience took sides with him and hissed down every attempt on the part of the rougher element to disconcert or interrupt the speaker by exaggerated and ill-timed applause mr wilde achieved a real triumph and it was by right of conquest by force of being a gentleman in the truest sense of the word his nobility not only obliged him it obliged his would-be mockers to good behaviour he crowned his triumph and he heaped coals of fire upon those curly and wiggy heads when he with simplicity and evident sincerity made them an offer of a statue of a greek athlete to stand in their gymnasium and said he should esteem it an honour if they would accept it this really seemed to stun the boys for they even forgot to recognise the offer with applause it was a lovely though sad sight to see those dear silly youths go out of the music hall in slow procession hanging their heads meekly and trying to avoid observation followed by faint expressions of favour from their friends but also with some hisses a lady near us said how mortified i should be if a son of mine were among them we think that everyone who witnessed the scene on tuesday evening must feel about it very much as we do and that those who came to scoff if they did not exactly remain to pray at least left the music hall with feelings of cordial liking and perhaps to their own surprise of respect for oscar wilde Unquote. courteous and kindly dignity that was perhaps the trait in oscar wilde's character which won him such enthusiastic friendships and so fervent a following of admirers the conduct of these harvard lads was remembered at the time when it was the popular thing to heap abuse on oscar wilde and in eighteen ninety five many of the baser american prints retold the story but gave the bow roll to the lads who had been so sorely discomfited 
Some Rochester students who had imitated the pranks of Harvard also came in for commendation, when to have flouted Oscar Wilde at any time in his career was supposed to entitle a man to social recognition and gratitude. But Rochester did not, in fact, come off any better in the encounter between brains and manners with stupidity and boorishness than Harvard had done. By his lecture and especially by his demeanour in the course of its delivery, Oscar Wilde won many friends in Boston, and that city of learning having set the seal of its high approval both on the lecturer and the lecture, the respectful attention of cultured Americans throughout the States was, at least, ensured to him. Some of the Boston ladies expressed the highest enthusiasm for the handsome young poet. Oscar Wilde's behaviour towards them only increased the respect with which he had come to be regarded. "'Oh, Mr Wilde,' said to him at a reception by a young lady, "'you have been adored in New York, but in Boston you will be worshipped.' "'I do not wish to be worshipped,' said Oscar." A circumstance which made for such success as he enjoyed during his lecture tour was the support given by the Irish Americans to the son of Speranza. Certain remarks in his lectures in which England and English society were scathingly criticised appeal strongly to this section of his audiences. To disagree with three-fourths of all England on all points is one of the first elements of sanity, is one of these remarks. But for the Americans, in general, there was such praise in some of his sayings as may have satisfied the almost morbid national self-conscientiousness of that country. "'It is rather to you,' he said in the course of his lecture on the English Renaissance, "'that we turn to perfect what we have begun. There is something Hellenic in your air and world. You are young.' No hungry generations tread you down, and the past does not mock you with the ruins of a beauty, the secret of whose creation you have lost. Love art for its own sake, and then all things that you need will be added to you. The Americans called this taffy, but they liked it. From Boston he went to Omaha, where he lectured on decorative art. In the course of the lecture, he described American furniture as not honestly made and out of character. This remark may not have pleased his audience, but it was a plain expression of the truth, and that he made it shows that he had an observant eye, and even in the matter of household furniture could tell bad workmanship from good. Only last year there was published in London a book by J. Morgan Richards, one of the keenest American businessmen living, who, speaking about the various kinds of goods which American commerce had unsuccessfully tried to introduce into England, specially refers to American furniture, which he describes in almost the very words which the young aesthete used in his lecture in Omaha. When in an obituary notice of Oscar Wilde, that wonderful writer Ernest La Jeunesse said of him, Il savait tout, he knew everything, he advanced a proposition which Oscar Wilde's admirers could support with numerous arguments and illustrations. Wherever he went in the States, says Mr. Walter Hamilton, 
he created a sensation, and it was gravely asserted that he had been induced to cross the Atlantic in order to work up an interest in patience, the satire of that opera not having been sufficiently understood in the States, except by reading people. Such an idea had probably never entered his head. He is scarcely the man to condescend to become an advertising medium for a play which professes to ridicule nearly everything he holds sacred in art or poetry. But his visit did certainly have a most beneficial effect upon the success of the piece, which, beyond a certain point, had created little interest amongst middle-class Americans whose ideas of culture are only awakened by an occasional visit to Europe. Mr Hamilton, in his commendable enthusiasm for Oscar Wilde, is here rather too severe, both on the middle-class Americans and on Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta. The middle-class Americans are certainly not lacking in culture. In this respect, indeed, they show themselves superior to the middle classes of Europe. And as to patience, the main idea of that amusing and inspiriting piece is one which men have appreciated ever since stage plays first existed. It is a theme which has been handled by most dramatists. It is Molière's Tartuffe, created in Gilbert's kindly and humane manner. It would appeal to anyone who had never heard of Oscar Wilde or of the aesthetic movement. This slight opera bouffe parodies in advance the great movement that is still going on in France, the struggle between the intellectuals and the military party. It is very much more than an amusette, though, as such, thanks to Sullivan's delightful music, it takes the highest place amongst pieces of its kind. Louisville was another city which he visited, and where he lectured on decorative art. Some offence was taken here at his description of American houses as illy designed, decorated shabbily, and in bad taste. But on the whole, the reception was a favourable one, and the local papers were filled with flattering articles about the lecturer. His experiences were varied. In some cities he had a fine welcome and a large audience. In other places he was received with indifference or even ridicule, and the takings at the door of the lecture hall were not sufficient to cover Major Pond's expenses. At Denver he lectured to a very rough audience, and he used to relate that the week previously a man had been shot in the public room in which he lectured there, while he had turned his back on the crowd for the purpose of examining a chromolithograph. Which shows... Oscar Wilde used to add, that people should never look at chromolithographs. Quote, From the States he went to Canada, visiting Quebec, Montreal, Ottawa, Kingston and Toronto. In the latter city he was present at a lacrosse match between the Torontos and the St. Regis Indians, which he pronounced a charming game, quite ahead of cricket in some respects. His lecture in the Grand Opera House, Toronto, was attended by 1,100 persons, and wherever he went, his movements and lectures created great interest. Unquote. Charming was at that time his favourite word to express his approval. Later on, he adopted the word amazing to describe anything very good. The opposite feeling was expressed by the word 
tedious, which he retained till the end of his life. He proceeded from Canada to Nova Scotia, lecturing at Halifax on 8th of October 1882 and on the following day. The subjects of his lectures were The Decorative Arts and The House Beautiful. The following account of his personal appearance was given by a writer in the Halifax Morning Herald, who prefaces his article by referring to the winning and polite friendliness with which he was received by Oscar Wilde. Quote, the apostle had no lily, nor yet a sunflower. He wore a velvet jacket which seemed to be a good jacket. He had an ordinary necktie and wore a linen collar about number 18 on a neck half a dozen sizes smaller. His legs were in trousers and his boots were apparently the product of New York art, judging by their pointed toes. His hair is the colour of straw, slightly leonine, and when not looked after, goes climbing all over his features. Mr. Wilde was communicative and genial. He said he found Canada pleasant. But in answer to a question as to whether European or American women were the more beautiful, he dexterously evaded his querist. That I cannot answer here. I shall wait till I get in mid-ocean, out of sight of both countries, your women are pretty, especially in the South, but the prettiness is in colour and freshness and bloom, and most of your ladies will not be pretty in ten years. I believe you discovered Mrs. Langtree. A look of rapture came to Oscar's face, and with a gesture, the first of the interview, he said, I would rather have discovered Mrs. Langtry than have discovered America. Her beauty is in outline perfectly moulded. She will be a beauty at eighty-five. Yes, it was for such ladies that Troy was destroyed, and well might Troy be destroyed for such a woman. Unquote. He, on that occasion, expressed his opinion that Poe was the greatest American poet, and of Walt Whitman he said that, If not a poet, he was the man who sounds a strong note, perhaps neither prose nor poetry, but something of his own that is grand, original, and unique. Unquote. It would seem from the account of the Morning Herald reporter that Oscar Wilde, during his Canadian tour, had been dyeing his hair, for never at any time could its natural colour have been described as the colour of straw. It was of a peculiarly rich brown, a very beautiful colour, and it was opulent and abundant. During his lecture tours, Oscar Wilde always carried a make-up box with him. As he was playing a part, he seemed to feel that he might enlist all the advantages that actors assume. The reference to the absence of gestures on his part is interesting, this struck other people who met Oscar Wilde in the States, elsewhere than on the lecture platform. Some people malevolently spoke of it as affected languor. One very prominent American statesman used to describe a visit he paid to Oscar in his hotel in Boston, where he found him lying on a sofa smoking cigarettes, and he said that he had been most unfavourably impressed by seeing a young man in such a state of slackness. This gentleman, who was a person of very great importance in the States, 
seems to have expected to find Oscar Wilde hustling round his room. It did not occur to him, nor to the other people who blamed Oscar for affected languidness, that the exertion of lecturing to large audiences night after night, in addition to the filling of innumerable social engagements, might make it necessary for the young man to rest himself whenever opportunity to do so offered itself. Poor Oscar Wilde! The simplest things he did were turned into reproaches against him. For every act of his, an evil motive was uncharitably devised. One would fancy that he committed an unpardonable offence in ever coming into the world at all. He was accused of posturing on his very deathbed. What ferocity does great preeminence not arouse in the envious heart of man? Sometime after his visit to Halifax, Oscar Wilde visited Walt Whitman. The meeting was not any more successful than was the meeting between him and Paul Verlaine. Oscar Wilde was distressed by the poverty of Walt Whitman's appearance, his shabby attire, and especially by the untidiness and squalor of the one room in which the American poet lived. The place was littered with great heaps of newspapers, for Walt Whitman collected everything that was printed about him, and these papers were strewn all over the room, and over them was so thick a coat of dust that it was impossible for any visitor to find a clean spot where to sit down. Walt Whitman, primeval, natural, aboriginal, would feel little sympathy for the dandified Helene. One may think of a meeting between Alcibiades and Diogenes to understand the lack of sympathy that must have reigned during this memorable interview. Oscar Wilde's great kindness of heart frequently manifested itself during this lecture tour. While in Philadelphia, he made great efforts to find a publisher for an American edition of the poems of a friend of his, a young Oxford man, who since has come to very high honours, and whose verse was certainly of a very high order. But at that time, the young poet was unknown, and the American publishers fought shy of the expense of publishing the volume. At last, one firm agreed to produce the poems, provided that Oscar Wilde wrote a preface to the verse. He at once agreed to do so, and the preface which he wrote is one of the finest pieces of prose that he had written up till then. The book was printed in lamentable style, the notions of the publishers as to what constituted the aesthetic decoration of a volume were curious in the extreme, and the English poet friend felt himself aggrieved by Oscar Wilde. After receiving the book from America, he wrote a letter to Oscar putting a period to their friendship, candidly stating that his political ambitions would be balked by its continuance and particularly chiding him for having allowed his poems to be produced in a style which could only cover their author with ridicule. Oscar Wilde's comment on this letter was characteristic. What he says, was his only remark, is like a poor little linnet's cry by the side of the road along which my immeasurable ambition is sweeping forward. The poor man was not to know to what a goal of glory he was to reach, per warios casus per tot discrimina rerum. 
the frantic applause of the dresden opera house fell short of the lonely grave in banyeur cemetery on his arrival in chicago where he lectured afterwards to very large audiences he received a letter at his hotel from a young irish sculptor who told him of the misery in which he was living of the anguish that he an artist who felt himself capable of great things suffered to be slighted and ignored in such a city as chicago and begged him to come to the garret which was his studio and look at his work and give him the encouragement of his praise if praise he could find to give directly after receiving this letter oscar wilde set out for the address given by the writer and after a hazardous excursion into the slums of chicago found john donoghue's abode he stayed with him for a long time he praised his work he comforted him he told him the great consolation of l'art pour l'art and he did not leave him without commissioning him to do a piece of work the next evening john donoghue sitting amongst the audience in the crowded lecture hall suddenly heard oscar wilde in the course of his lecture reproach the fashionable and distinguished men and women who were listening with rapt attention to his words with the fact that a young sculptor of undoubted genius who was living in their midst was being allowed by them in their ignorance and indifference to art to die of hunger and that starvation which more rapidly kills the artist the contemptuous neglect of the public he went on to describe his visit to john donoghue's studio he spoke of the beautiful things that he had seen there of the beautiful things that this young man could do of the honour which he could bring to the city of chicago if only people would encourage his endeavours the consequence was that next day john donoghue was everywhere discussed in chicago people flocked to his studio commissions poured in and after a very short while one of those munificent patrons of art who exist in america alone as though mycenas had transmigrated to the states after the fall of the roman empire came forward with an offer to maintain the young man during a course of study in the atelier of france and italy john donoghue's artistic career was assured he came to europe he studied he prospered but he was not a great man nor was he a great artist in oscar wilde's adversity he had not a word of comfort to send him but the circumstances of his own death seem to show that in his last days he reproaches himself for his ingratitude mr walter hamilton describes a curious incident which occurred towards the end of oscar wilde's tour in nova scotia Quote, after leaving halifax oscar wilde went to lecture in several smaller towns in nova scotia amongst others to monkton where his experiences were of a somewhat unpleasant description owing to a misunderstanding he had with a so-called young men's christian association it arose thus two committee men had been negotiating to secure him the ymca committee telegraphed to mr wilde's agent offering seventy-five dollars for a lecture on friday night mr hustard answered that the terms were satisfactory for thursday night and requested a reply this was about four p m at about eight p m four hours later the ymca replied that thursday night was satisfactory mr wilde then replied in effect 
waited till seven then had to close with other parties sorry another committee of townspeople had in the meantime closed with mr wilde then the ymca obtained a writ which was served on mr wilde the ymca laid damages at two hundred dollars mr hustard offered to give them twenty dollars and pay costs this was not accepted finally mr Esty and mr weldon gave their bonds for five hundred dollars for mr wilde's appearance the action of the ymca is generally condemned in the colony both by the very pious who lift up their eyes and hands in pious horror at one who attempts to raise the love of art and beauty into a kind of religious worship and by the ungodly who see that the ymca merely sought to fill its coffers out of the attraction of the arch prophet irrespective of his teachings and failing that feed their revenge by attempts to levy blackmail Unquote. the incident is worth recording because it shows that oscar wilde's financial position towards the end of his lecturing tour was such that he was not unwilling to accept the sum of fifteen pounds for travelling to a small town like Moncton and lecturing there, and that he had no objection to appearing under the auspices of a young men's Christian association. It also shows that by this time Major Pond had determined his arrangement, for the name of Mr Wilde's agent appears to have been Husted. Yet he did not return to New York without a substantial sum of money, and his mode of life there previous to his departure for Europe was such that it attracted the attention of the New York Flashmen. Oscar Wilde fell into the hands of the Bunko Steerers. He was actually involved in playing a game of poker with some affable gentleman whose acquaintance he had made in a casual manner. They had introduced themselves to him as having attended his lecture in Boston with great edification to themselves. The result of the friendly game was what might have been expected. Oscar Wilde was cleared out of all the cash he had in his pocket, and when he left the table he had to give a cheque for a large amount on a New York bank to settle what he owed as losses. However, not long after he'd left the house where he'd been fleeced, it occurred to him that he had simply been swindled, and promptly drove to the bank and stopped the cheque. The men, it appeared, were notorious bunco-steerers. During his visit to America, his irony did not spare the Americans, and he gave utterance to a few remarks which would not make for his popularity amongst the people against whom they were aimed. Some of these sayings he afterwards used in his plays. He was, perhaps, proudest of having defined American dry goods as the productions of the American novelists. The American novelists, lui en ut garde un denis. On a subsequent occasion, he found everybody in the States reading Robert Ellesmere, and during a luncheon party in Dublin after his return from the States, he described how in the trains every passenger seemed to have a cheap edition of this book in his or her hands. As each page is finished, it is torn out and flung through the window, he said, so that in the end, the American prairie will get a top dressing of Robert Ellesmere. One disappointment had awaited Oscar Wilde in America. He was unable to find a manager who was prepared to produce Vera. 
so that in his original purpose in going to America he was not successful. Vera was produced about a year later in New York at a trial evening, but badly mounted, badly played, it met with so unfavourable a reception that it was instantly withdrawn. It was not a good play in the sense of a stage piece, but it certainly merited to be spoken of with more respect than in the following paragraph in Punch, in which Wilde's disappointment at the Adelphi was recorded. In its number for 10th December 1881, the following Impression du Théâtre appeared. Quote, the production of Mr. Oscar Wilde's play Vera is deferred. Naturally, no one would expect a Vera to be at all certain. It must be, like a pretendedly infallible forecast, so very weather-cocky. Vera is about nihilism. This looks as if there was nothing in it. But why did Mr. O. Wilde select the Adelphi for his first appearance as a dramatic author, in which career we wish him cordially all the success he may deserve? Why did he not select the Savoy? Surely where there's a donkey cart, we should say doily cart, there ought to be an opportunity for an Oscar. In answer to numerous inquiries, we beg to state that as far as we know, the wilds of Scotland are no relation to the wilds of Ireland. Ed. Unquote. Although he did not succeed in placing his drama, and though the lecture tour was not as fruitful as he may have been led to expect after his triumphant reception both in New York and in Boston, this year's travelling in America was productive of the greatest good in the development of his character. Brought into daily and hourly contact with the most energetic of men, his latent energy aroused itself. He returned to Europe sharpened and stimulated to a degree that made him almost irrecognisable. America had taken all the nonsense out of him, if so trivial a phrase may be used in this connection. The dealings he had had with men, the struggles both social and commercial in which he had in the main triumphed, had given him experience which years of life in London might never have afforded. His eyes had, moreover, been opened to the exact value, as an asset to a man who wishes to reach to influence and power, of the affectations which he had till then assumed. He had had, so to speak, a sound commercial training during those twelve months in America. The conclusion to which he came in the end was that it would be to his interest to discard the unworthy posturings which till then had disfigured him, he dropped his masquerade overboard into the Atlantic and never again assumed it. And here masquerade applies as much to the affectation of manner and speech as to the actual disguise he had been wearing. End of chapter 9